Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Baddiel and I'm very, very pleased to have with me today as my guest the fantastic Zadie Smith, the writer of White Teeth and On Beauty and NW and her brilliant new book, Swing Time, which is moving and page-turning and funny and entertaining. Hello, Zadie. Hi. Um, so well done. Congratulations. It's, it's, I really enjoyed this book very Thank much. You. And Zadie's also brought along four or five objects that mean something in relation to this book. So I'm really looking forward to finding out what those are. I'm going to begin by asking you about something that sort of relates to myself. You know I'm quite solipsistic. <laughs> I should say we are friends. We should are. probably full disclosure. Good we are friends. We are friends. And uh, Zadie actually sent me this book and said, but deal, this novel has absolutely no Jewish angst in it, but it's still OK. Love Zadie. She knows me so well. Um, I related to this book in many ways, but one way that you will understand, which is that there's a geography of London that you have kind of colonised in a literary way. And I think it's your literary landscape in the same way that Newark is Roth's or Dublin is Joyce's or whatever, which is NW10 in London, which is also where I'm from. Right. I love the specificity of that in here. There's one point where the narrator gets the 52 bus to Brondesbury and I thought, yeah, that's the correct bus. It's always the correct bus. I think the 52 bus appears in all my novels at some point. Really? <laughs> uh, is that specificity important? Do you know Joyce used to write back from right. Vienna or wherever he was, Trieste, uh, for information about Dublin streets that he'd forgotten about? Is that specificity important to you? I like it in the sense of a shout-out, as you'd have it in hip-hop. But when it gets very, very close to the characters, then the streets get confused. So it is Wilsdon and Kilburn and Queen's Park and Harlesden up to a certain point. But I would say right at the centre where they live, it gets a little more obscure. I, I don't know why. I, can't, I have no real defence for it apart from I want the very centre of it to be imagined, I guess. Yeah. I mean, one place that's very important in this book is the church yeah. that they go for dance lessons to, the unnamed narrator and Tracy. And it's called St Christopher's, and I don't know a St Christopher's. No, it doesn't in, exist. Yeah, in, that's a good example. Did you call it St Christopher's? This is a complete shot in the dark because he is the patron saint of travel. Yes. And that's it's a book very much about travel as right. well. Uh, and about moving away, I guess, from right. what you might consider your hometown, for exactly. want a better word. Swing Time tells the story of two mixed-race girls from uh, neighbouring estates in North London who both dream uh, and hope to become dancers, but only one of them ever really becomes a professional dancer. The other one, the narrator, who is never named, ends up travelling the world uh, as the PA to a global pop superstar. Uh, it's interesting because the book does have in it the unnamed narrator kind of rootlessness, that she doesn't quite know where she is from right. anymore. And I, I wondered about that in terms of a thing in quite a lot of your books, which is a struggle with what authenticity is, whether right. that be geographic or racial or class-based or whatever, that a lot of the your main characters are perhaps struggling with the idea that they may have in some way right. betrayed you know, th those origins. I mean, certainly the narrator worries about that a lot here. And in NW, there's a struggle going on between Leah and Natalie in a way, right. between who's more authentic, who's more NW in yeah. some way. I think part of it is the kind of trauma of leaving, which I think a lot of people have if they go from one kind of area to a different kind of area, to a different class, they worry about what they left behind. But I was thinking about it recently in terms of capital. Like, we grew up, you and I, in an era of, like, free, absolute free trade, neoliberal capitalism, and one of the side issues of it is that we were supposedly untied from everything, right? Mm. Particularly in the 90s, the idea that all the old connections didn't matter, we're in this new world where money moved freely and everything else moved freely and it was all fine. 
And I can remember things like the predictions of the end of religion, right, in the, mm. in the 90s and the end of all the old ways, the end of the old politics. And I think what the shock has been is that people choose to be tied to things, in fact. Mm. That that world of completely liberal freedom, which was really economic freedom disguised as every other kind of freedom, is not always what people want. No, well, I agree with that. I mean, I, I actually tweeted yesterday one of the sentences that moved me most in the book, which is, I mean, this is jumping forward, but... Fern says, after a, a discussion where the narrator has been talking essentially in kind of a Western way right. about what people might want, he says, uh, I think sometimes I sometimes wonder if what people want more than freedom is meaning. I've right. slightly misquoted that. No, no, that's right. Um, and I, I think that is one of the, for want of a better word, wisest sentences in the, in the novel, oh, because I think people think very much, certainly we think, that, that we're trying to bring freedom right. to the world. And actually what people want is a narrative, I think, right. for their lives. And I think that's what's going on with Trump and that's what's right. going on with lots of things where people think, if I go back to some idea of the nation state or some idea of what right. our culture is supposed to be in the big stories, right. my life will have meaning. Right. I think particularly as people get older, the need for some kind of continuity in their lives, some kind of narrative continuity is very strong. And I don't personally have contempt for that. Like there's a whole other side of the argument which suggests it's it's weak people who need this or people who uh, cling to their religion or whatever whatever the argument is. But I think it's a natural human need and a politics and, and an art that appreciates what people want. That feeling of connection is a more honest one. Yeah, but I think the, the narrator hasn't got that to some extent. No. You know, the novel is called Swing Time, which is obviously about dance, and the novel is very much about dance, but it also suggested to me a kind of oscillation, a kind of uncertainty between right. places and hard to pin down. And that's what I think... She is the main character, but at the same time, she revolves around other characters right. who are much more fixed in who they are than she is. Yeah, that's what I wanted. I knew it would annoy some people, but I was thinking of... When you make an eye, like at the moment everybody's blogging and they're on Instagram and they're constantly talking in a first-person voice, right, very mm. confidently. And the thing which I always am struck by is how confident they are of the person they're presenting. They're definitely presenting someone to other people. And that pr presentation is now considered what a person is. But it seemed to me when people aren't with their friends and family, when they don't have their phone on them, most importantly, when they're completely alone, then the eye doesn't really look like that. Like mm. there are moments when I'm completely alone where I couldn't tell you really what I consist of. Like you consist in relation to other people. So I thought it'd be interesting to have a narrator who wasn't trying to present anything to anyone, who was just like an open eye. Mm. And it's everybody else you see, but you don't really see her very clearly. Uh, let's have a reading from the book because we've got the audio book here. And uh, this clip is right at the start and I think relates to what you're saying, actually. It's from the prologue in which the narrator has just been to a talk by a film director and has watched a clip from Swing Time, which is the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film that gives the book its title. On the huge screen before me, Fred Astaire danced with three silhouetted figures. They can't keep up with him. They begin to lose their rhythm. Finally, they throw in the towel, making that very American, oh, fooey, gesture with their three left hands and walking off stage. Esther danced on alone. I understood all three of the shadows were also Fred Astaire. Had I known that as a child? No one else pours the air like that. No other dancer bends his knees in quite that way. Meanwhile, the director spoke of a theory of his about pure cinema. 
which he began to define as the interplay of light and dark, expressed as a kind of rhythm over time. But I found this line of thought boring and hard to follow. Behind him, the same clip, for some reason, played again, and my feet, in sympathy with the music, tapped at the seat in front of me. I felt a wonderful lightness in my body, a ridiculous happiness. It seemed to come from nowhere. I'd lost my job, a certain version of my life, my privacy, yet all these things felt small and petty next to this joyful sense I had watching the dance and following its precise rhythms in my own body. I felt I was losing track of my physical location, rising above my body, viewing my life from a very distant point, hovering over it. It reminded me of the way people describe hallucinogenic drug experiences. I saw all my years at once, but they were not piled up on each other. Experience after experience, building into something of substance, the opposite. A truth was being revealed to me, that I had always tried to attach myself to the light of other people, that I had never had any light of my own. I experienced myself as a kind of shadow, yeah, so that relates very strongly to what we've been talking about, right. about how we have an unnamed narrator who perceives herself as a kind of shadow, right. as kind of not entirely substantial. Right. And I think, I don't know if you had this in mind, but she relates in a way to quite a lot of first-person narrators in, in literature, to sort of Nick Carraway or Sancho right. Panza, Esther Summerson in Bleak House, yeah. who are observing and refracting characters who are much bigger than they are. Yeah, I was thinking also... I teach Kafka every year and there's a lovely bit in his diaries describing how pressed he was by his father and he imagines his father like lying across a map of the world and only in the bits where his body isn't is where Kafka can survive. Right. And I thought about that kind of relation to another person. Like some people are just more charismatic in some way, you know, brighter, bigger, and it's hard to coexist with them sometimes. Yeah, I worry for her. I mean, this may just be because I'm a friend of yours, okay? And I, and I, I read, even though obviously she's not you, I saw you in her, just the way I read it. And you may disagree with this, but I felt frightened for her in the face of the fact she's interacting with these characters who are, in one way or another, bullying her. Right. You know, she is bullied by her mum to some extent. Yeah. She's certainly bullied by Tracy and she's bullied by Amy uh, in different ways. Right. Uh, and, and yet I felt the character was always feeling that she was chasing the moral or emotional high ground that these right. characters had. Right. There's a certain amount of bullying, but I guess I think the book ends at... She's about 33, right? Jesus' mm. age. And th mm. there's the hope for something better. I was thinking a lot of the kind of girls that I teach and their anxieties and, and their um, feeling of disconnection. I was thinking maybe for a lot of young women, mid-30s becomes a better time, right? A time where you can kind of settle down and realise what, was, what wasn't of worth in your previous experience. So in that sense, it's a kind of building's Roman, I guess, with a more hopeful end. Uh, you've brought along some objects yes. to tell me about. Do you want to talk to me about them? Yeah, so the first is, it's kind of a West African head. It was a part of a pair. There was a woman and a man. This is the woman. My parents had it on their shelves. They were facing each other in a kind of love match. And then uh, I guess when they got divorced, I, my mother must have taken one and my father must have taken one. Mm. A nice uh, separation. This was from my father's uh, old people's home when he died. It was one of the few things on his shelf. So he must have taken it with him. As so let's just describe remnant. it a bit more for those who can't see it, which is everybody apart yes, from me. Of it's, a, it's about 
what is it, three or four inches high? Yeah. And well, do you have any idea which part of Africa it would be from? I know nothing about it. I think it's West African, but that might be a kind of romantic connection. Yeah, and it's a girl. It's a girl, just her head and her body. And you see them everywhere now. People, You can buy them cheap on a stall in yeah. Camden. Most of them are phony, I think, from contemporary factories. I had a lot of them factories. in the 90s. Right. Uh, I had loads of these. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. Everybody had them, right? Yeah. And I suppose my mother's house, there were a lot of them, and I used to just kind of ignore them as wallpaper. I realised I really wanted to know more about my roots, diaspora roots, and I've been spending a lot of time in West Africa and trying to come to terms with a culture which is primarily was primarily verbal and visual. And, you know, you come from... Born in our part of the world, you are concentrated on words, you know? Mm. You're, you learn to think of culture as a thing only of words. Mm. So it was beautiful for me to be in West Africa and realise it is possible to have a long, complex history of tribes and kings and social structures and art, um, which was not primarily written, but was real and deeply felt. So paying more attention to this little statuette was part of that okay. realisation. Um, I think that the the movement between London and Africa, or New York and Africa, is really interesting in this book. But let's hear a bit of the audiobook, which is still very rooted in London, which is when the narrator first remembers meeting Tracy. If all the Saturdays of 1982 can be thought of as one day, I met Tracy at 10am on that Saturday, walking through the sandy gravel of a churchyard, each holding our mother's hand. There were many other girls present, but for obvious reasons we noticed each other, the similarities and the differences as girls will. Our shade of brown was exactly the same, as if one piece of tan material had been cut to make us both and our freckles gathered in the same areas. We were of the same height. But my face was ponderous and melancholy, with a long, serious nose, and my eyes turned down, as did my mouth. Tracy's face was perky and round. She looked like a darker Shirley Temple, except her nose was as problematic as mine. I could see that much at once. A ridiculous nose. It went straight up in the air like a little piglet. Cute but also obscene. Her nostrils were on permanent display. On noses, you could call it a draw. On hair, she won comprehensively. She had spiral curls. They reached to her backside and were gathered into two long plaits, glossy with some kind of oil, tied at their ends with satin-yellow bows. Satin-yellow bows were a phenomenon unknown to my mother. She pulled my great frizz back in a single cloud, tied with a black band. My mother was a feminist. She wore her hair in a half-inch afro. Her skull was perfectly shaped. She never wore makeup and dressed us both as plainly as possible. Hair is not essential when you look like Nefertiti. She'd no need of makeup or products or jewellery or expensive clothes. And in this way, her financial circumstances, her politics and her aesthetic were all perfectly, conveniently, matched. Accessories only cramped her style, including, or so I felt at the time, the horse-faced seven-year-old by her side. An extract from the audiobook of Swing Time, read by Pippa Bennett-Warner. 
It's a really female book, this one. Yeah. I noticed that the men in the book would fail to some extent the Bechdel test if there was an opposite of the Bechdel test in that they seem to exist mainly in relationship to, yeah, the, to the women in this book. I mean, was that something you wanted to, to write, a book in which all the main characters were, were female, sort of very female? Yeah, it just dominated my mind. I wasn't even considering the men recent, really. That's true. And partly it was because I, when I was in West Africa, I was looking at these extraordinary matriarchal situations right so if you are in one of these compounds there might be 10 women and 50 mm. children and you won't see a man for months and uh, men though i guess they have a kind of they have a power in the village they do practically very little as far as i could see so i i was interested in that and in the echoes i could remember from my mother's jamaican childhood as well a similar structure though less formally established but in the end the same you know a lot of absent or missing men mm. And also, I suppose it's the period of life I'm in, you know, with small children that that the network of women in your life becomes much more significant. But also, even the idea of that kind of polygamous setup is very interesting to me. I didn't end up writing that much about it, but the fact is more people live in those polygamous settlements in the world than live in mm. our setups. And it's quite a curious thing, instead of just dismissing it out of hand, to think about what it would be like to live with many women. I mean, childcare is easier, I'll tell you that for starters, because yeah, yeah. there's always a woman there to help you. Yeah. I was just interested in that dynamic and what it meant. And, um, yeah, it became kind of the centre of the book. OK, on to your next object, which I can see sparkling on the table now. It's a sequined single glove. Michael Jackson's glove? <laughs> it's Michael Jackson's glove. It's not the literal one he wore, but it's made by the woman who made them. So it's one exactly like oh, right. his crazy silver gloves. Uh, it was given to me because I wrote a story about Michael Jackson for The New Yorker, and I guess they photographed the glove for the illustration, then somebody sent me the glove. Uh, which I was very pleased to receive. Mm. So Jackson, well, I, I was thinking a lot in the book about tribal pride and shame. And I think the diasporic black community is almost unique in the world in feeling for so many centuries so debased. Like some of our most famous slogans like black is beautiful, which is a, a lovely slogan. But you have to ask yourself what kind of people have been so debased that they need such a slogan. Yeah. So Jackson comes at an interesting moment because he was, you know, our hero of heroes. But for me, Michael Jackson is, is an object of quite a lot of shame. Mm. Mm. I was thinking about people like like your favourite, Roth. Uptight's my favourite, but oh, nonetheless, right. Roth is my Roth, second favourite. Roth deals with a certain kind of shame of his tribe, right, which is the shame of the Schmiel or the non-physical, non-all-American mm. Jew in his mind yes, when he was a kid. and creates the Swede in American Pastoral to sort Swede, of right. uh, move against that, to create right. a Jew who is powerful and physical and right. beautiful. all of that stuff. And, and also to break through another stereotype, which I guess is a positive stereotype, as they say in America, of the nice Jewish boy, smart, clever, off to great places. His portnoy is like, mm. <laughs> he destroyed it. Yeah. He destroyed it in front of all his people, in front of his mother. Mm. It's a kind of act of war, but also it's freeing, right? You're freed of both fake through, pride and fake shame. Through comedy. Through comedy, and I think it's necessary. Yeah. So Jackson, I mean, I understand that, you know, Spike Lee still makes documentaries about him, and many people I respect still feel or believe that he had a particularly unusual skin disease that nobody's mm. ever had before that, mm. that showed in him as it showed in no other human. Mm. But I guess I don't personally believe that. Mm. I believe the evidence of my eyes, which is that he had an enormous amount of surgery mm. in order to make himself look anything other than a black man. So Jackson, for me, is a kind of symbol of enormous pride, because what was he other than the encapsulation of a kind of African rhythm? He's the 
one of the best dancers who's ever lived. Yeah. And yet in public and throughout my childhood, our object of pride showed himself to be so utterly ashamed and disgusted by what he was day in, day out. I think that was enormously traumatic for a whole generation mm. of children. So much so that even now when you meet them in their 40s and 50s and you dare to suggest that maybe this man did not have a skin disease and instead was bleaching his skin for decades. It's an unacceptable idea. Although, interestingly, you also talk in the book about various conspiracy theories that communities have, the Illuminati and and other ways in which they make their world the one that they want to believe it is. And I guess that belief that Michael Jackson had a skin disease and wasn't, in fact, ashamed of his own blackness is one that some people would really want to believe. Yeah, me too. I would really like to believe it. Since we're talking about dancing, let's hear the next extract from the audiobook, which is about dancing. If Fred Astaire represented the aristocracy, I represented the proletariat, said Jean Kelly. And by this logic, Bill Bojangles Robinson should really have been my dancer, because Bojangles danced for the Harlem Dandy, for the ghetto kid, for the sharecropper, for all the descendants of slaves. But to me, a dancer was a man from nowhere, without parents or siblings, without a nation or people, without obligations of any kind, And this was exactly the quality I loved. The rest of it, all the detail, fell away. I ignored the ridiculous plots of those movies, the opera-like comings and goings, the reversals of fortune, the outrageous meet-cutes and coincidences, the minstrels, maids and butlers. To me, they were only roads leading to the dance. The story was the price you paid for the rhythm. Pardon me, boy, is that the Chattanooga choo-choo? Each syllable found its corresponding movement in the legs, the stomach, the backside, the feet. In ballet hour, by contrast, we danced to classical recordings. White music, as Tracy bluntly called it, which Miss Isabel recorded from the radio onto a series of cassettes. But I could barely recognise it as music. It had no time signature that I could hear, and although Miss Isabel tried to help us, shouting out the beats of each bar... I could never relate these numbers in any way to the sea of melody that came over me from the violins or the crashing thump of a brass section. I still knew more than Tracy. I knew there was something not quite right about her rigid notions, black music, white music, that there must be a world somewhere in which the two combined. In films and photographs, I had seen white men sitting at their pianos as black girls stood by them, singing. Oh, I wanted to be like those girls... An extract from the audiobook of Swing Time, read by Pippa Bennett-Warner. So dance is perhaps the major theme of the book, and I know you've always been interested in in musical theatre and the great Hollywood golden age of musical cinema. What does that mean for you, all that? Well, my next object is a Fred Astaire book, some old W.H. Smith 70s classic. Yeah, it looks really like you'd have got it from a bargain (laughs) shop in in Kilman High Road. It's fantastic. In this image, he's holding uh, Ginger Rogers and every part of his body, from the toes to his fingertips, even the way he casts his chin, is of unbelievable elegance. Yeah, elegance is a word that comes up quite a lot in the book. And a kind of beauty of line. And I've always been moved by him. And also, I guess, the idea of a kind of positive appropriation. Because... He learnt from Bojangles, from Bill Robinson. He was very obsessed with black dance. His tap dance skills are are taken from the Chitlin circuit and, you know, black artists added to something all of his own to make something beautiful. And those kind of combinations are very 
compelling to me. I guess because when you're a kid growing up and you want to make art, you have to think in that way. You have to think, I'm going to take something of me and something of X, Y and Z and, and make something new. But there seems to be a yearning in, in you and in some of your books towards that elegance, towards that golden age. And Yes, but I was aware as a child that it was a completely insane mm. form of nostalgia because, of course, if I go back 40, 50, 60 years as the person I am... A black woman, life gets tricky. Mm, mm. So that kind of historical nostalgia is always interesting to me because it's only really available to people who aren't likely to be pogromed or raped mm. or lynched or murdered in any of the previous decades. And yet it doesn't mean that we don't have historical nostalgia, right? Yeah, of course. I'm sure... And, and look to it. Right. And look to it as something that can raise us up out of the pogrom right. or, you know, the, the whatever repression is a right. lot at the time. But it's a kind of magical thinking because, you you know, the young Jewish boy who thinks, oh, 19th century Russia, I love Tolstoy. Yeah, mm. but you don't want to live in that 19th no. century Russia if you're no. a young Jewish boy. And it's the same for me, the 30s, the 40s in America, aesthetically, visually, musically. I love that period. But the bottom line is that was not a life that I could exist in. The book sends you back to uh, watch these things, which luckily we can now very easily on YouTube. Right. And I watched quite a lot of the ones uh, that you referred to, including uh, I went and found Jenny Legon, oh, yeah. who you talk about a lot, who is clearly... I've never heard of her, but no. she's like an amazing, an amazing dancer. And so did you? when did you find her? Uh, very late. I didn't know her as a child. Um, it came through... I was doing a Canadian interview uh, with a very bright radio lady called Eleanor Wachtel and she mentioned to me, oh you know there's a woman who lives in Canada, she's recently died, she's an old black woman who taught tap and she was in those early movies here and there. So she was the one who told me and I started seeking her out and I loved finding her like a a dancer like that, so instinctive like the moment you see her you know she's a genius of Mm. some kind Mm. and then trying to trace her just as happens in the novel through these movies and finding you know how debased her position was. So she was given tiny tiny roles you know of a minute here a minute there all of them bad really and in the end gave up she went to Canada and thought I'm not going to do this anymore and she became very angry with America exactly because of the situation it put her in Um, so I just found her to be a perfect foil in the novel and a a great subject and also because I'm aware that readers now have this Mm. capacity to google all the time Mm. and it's quite a fun thing to to play with to me it's part of the novel yeah no it it, it is there's a particular clip i can't remember where it's from where she's doing tap it's extraordinary and and i think i then read because that's what you do i then clicked on jenny lagon and she kind of claims to have invented tap to some extent (laughs) yeah her kind of tap i mean she's very wild with her feet she's very free she was a good friend of the nicholas brothers she had all these kind of crazy skills and her form of tap dancing she thought was unique to her and and that's kind of extraordinary Mm. like the ability to create a genre of an art form and still nobody cares. You know when you just said, you know, you look at her and you know instantly she's a genius. I, yeah. I think there's something in, in this book to do with dance, which is this thing beyond words. Right. The narrator feels it sometimes when she's in Africa and she sometimes feels it watching Tracy. Right. That there is a kind of way of expressing yourself, of being yourself, right. of expressing your culture, which doesn't involve words and which yeah. she is saddled by. She's saddled by words. Yeah, I, I, I feel that, that there's... All art forms are trying to bottle a certain kind of sensibility, right? So when you stand in front of Rothko, you feel something, a certain kind of something, which is completely different from when you stand in front of a Monet, for example. To read Updike is not like reading Roth, is not like reading Zora Neale Hurston. But dance seems to me such a pure form of sensibility. Like the way you feel when you watch Astaire is so different from the way you feel when you watch Eleanor Powell. They have a different kind of energy that they're translating to you. Mm. And something about the purity of that in dance, I really admire i love 
getting the essence of a person just through their physical movements. And uh, words are always, I think for most writers, they always feel a bit secondary, a little bit tired, used by everybody. There's some famous quote, I can't remember, it's really famous, about how all art aspires to to the condition of music. But in this book, all art aspires to the condition of dance, I would say. Although, interestingly, another thing the book is about is fame, which is very uh, encapsulated in Amy and in what happens with Amy and and fame. I, I did a stand-up show about fame and that show was about the fact that if you are famous, there is a version of you out there that is not you. Right. And that as a person who's sort of personally obsessed with authenticity, that is really weird. Uh, and in this book, which I think has its own, you know, authenticity of what is real, what is you, what is your culture is a very big deal, then suddenly the narrator finds herself caught up in a world of complete artifice, right. it, which is actually intruding into the culture that she's trying to locate and understand herself right. in the Gambia. Is that is that what you feel was yeah, why I, you went into that, why, she, why you wanted to write about that? I was curious. I wanted to try and trace all kinds of power. And one of the great forms of power has been fame, not just in individual cases, but, for instance, the fame of countries. I was curious about the idea of leaving the name of the country out just to see what would happen. Mm. Of course, it, all the cities and all the areas in the Gambia are expressly mentioned and yet I noticed when people read it even when they reviewed it that the country is so unfamous in a brutal vulgar sense that it was possible for people not really to care where it was or to imagine it was Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire and not even bother doing the Google to check Mm. so one of the questions is what is it like to exist in that place like we, we exist in so overly imagined and understood places like London and New York which have whole literatures I could meet people in the Gambia for example who would know details about American life which seem improbable. And yet it's possible for Americans, many, many Americans, not to know that Liberia, A, exists, that Liberia was made from American slaves who came and took this land. Like, they don't understand their relation to this other country. Mm. And none of that would matter if it were not the fact that attention means political interest, aid, involvement, change. So relative amounts of attention given to various people, places, is a political matter, you know. Yeah, well, Africa, obviously, is seen by lots of people as a block, which it right. is not. And, in fact, the narrator, in one of the moments where she gets slightly told off or upbraided, is upbraided, I think, by Fern yeah. for just as they're on their way to the Gambia, talking about it as if it is Africa. And he right. points out that if we were on our way to France, you wouldn't talk about Germany. Right. And, actually, that sort of learning process that the narrator goes through is one of the things that I think is, is really interesting in the book because it you know, cuts across that idea of this... She's not an unreliable narrator. You accept her right. view of the world, but she doesn't know everything. No, she comes as a stranger and a tourist. OK, on to your next object. Um, it's a silly postcard of a pug and a Boston Terrier. It says, you my sidekick for life. OK. And it, it was given to me by Nick, I guess, somewhere during the writing of this novel, maybe for my birthday. When you say what helped you write the book, the practical aspect is that your family, you know, or whoever is holding and supporting your children while you're doing this. And Maud. Your, and Maud, pug. my pug. She yeah. didn't help at all. She's no. completely useless. No, but, but Nick looking after Maud but Nick, maybe helped. <laughs> Nick looking after Maud, Nick. Um, but, yeah, writing doesn't happen in a kind of vacuum. Like, you really need things like childcare, a supportive partner. So... While, while, while we're talking about your, your family, the mother figure in, yes. this, in this book is a very enormous character as well, one of the trinity of very big characters that triangle the narrator. And I, I 
thought it was an amazing portrayal, partly because I would say the other two characters, Amy and Tracy, they both remain very kind of high status and powerful right. and sort of frightening, whereas the mum kind of cracks a bit uh, yeah. towards the end. It's very, very moving towards the end without saying exactly what happens, but, you know, she she her power dwindles towards right. the end. And I'm interested, having met your mum, how you felt about writing... That this character with right. your with your because I've just done a show about my parents yeah. and one of the things I was able to do was be very free. I mean, I'm, I'm, my show is completely true, 100, percent right. but very free because my mother is dead. Right. And I wondered because your mum is a very powerful woman, yeah. what she would have thought about this book. I think there is a kind of late art that comes out of dead parents, right? Yeah. Like uh, there's some really interesting examples. Saul Bellow is a good example. Roth is a good example. Nobody thinks of it consciously that way, but it's certainly the case. When I was writing it, I mean, I gave it to my mother and I wonder what she'd make of it, but she correctly saw, and it's true, that a large part of that mother is much more like me than her mm. in the kind of um, autodidact preoccupations and all that kind of stuff. I think when I'm writing, the subconscious part is an element of casting forward, you know? So, like, when I first got married, I ended up writing a book about being married for 30 years. And when I had my children, I wrote this book, which is really a projection slightly of when your mother is turned to another thing, as I am turned to writing, what does a child make of such a thing, you know? I think people want to believe, I always want to believe that you hear women say all the time, well, as long as I'm happy, that makes the children happy. Right. And I, I, though that sounds wonderful, I think it perhaps is a self-serving argument. Um, and that children really just want what they want, which is all of you all the time. I, I don't mean that you should give them all of you all the time, but Perhaps it's important to be honest with oneself about what they want and then work from there rather than working from whatever's good for me is good for them. If I have a massage and I feel really good, my children mm. are happy for me. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not <laughs> they bothered. really don't care. No, they don't care. So uh, it was from that perspective I was trying to imagine bits of me and kind of extrapolating and the worst case scenario, I guess, in some case. Like what if I was so adamant on this outside interest that I didn't see my children? Right. Didn't see them who they were. I, I don't mean physically saw them, but didn't allow them to be. But my my mother enjoyed it. I think she liked the book maybe even more than my others. And I think she's also very used to all these kind of literary avatars, which she knows mm. are multiple versions of things I've imagined or dreaded. or And also whatever the book demands, right? There becomes a logic of the narrative, which kind of quickly spins away from fact or reality. That's kind of complex though when you're doing a character who's famous because Amy, yes. people will just say, well, it's Madonna or yes. they'll say it's Kylie Minogue or whoever. Yeah, and, I, knew, I knew that would happen. Yeah, and that has to happen partly because those characters are not real in right. the same way. Right. Real people, they have a story already and so therefore people see that in their own minds projected right. onto another story. Alright, well in terms of what we're talking about, let's hear another extract from the audiobook of Swing Time. In this clip the narrator remembers coming across Amy for the first time. I was still a child when my path first crossed with Amy's. But how can I call it fate? Everybody's path crossed with hers at the same moment. As soon as she emerged, she was uncontained by space and time. With not one path to cross, but all paths. They were all hers, like the Queen in Alice in Wonderland. All ways were her way, and of course millions of people felt as I did. Whenever they listened to her records, they felt they were meeting her. They still do. Her first single came out the week of my tenth birthday. She was twenty-two at the time. By the end of that same year, she once told me, she could no longer walk down the street, not in Melbourne, Paris, New York, London, Tokyo. Once, when we were flying over London together en route to Rome, having a casual conversation about London as a city, its virtues and drawbacks, 
She admitted she had never been on the tube, not even once, and could not really imagine it as an experience. I suggested that tube systems were basically the same all over the world, but she said that the last time she had been on a train of any description was when she'd left Australia for New York 20 years earlier. She was only six months out of her sleepy hometown at that point. She became an underground star in Melbourne so very quickly, and it took only six more months in New York to remove the qualifier. An indisputable star ever since. A fact that is, for her, devoid of sadness or any trace of neurosis or self-pity. And this is one of the striking things about Amy. She has no tragic side. She accepts everything that has happened to her as her destiny, no more surprised or alienated to be who she is than I imagine Cleopatra was to be Cleopatra. What I thought about that kind of fame, which, which I think is quite amusing about it, is that I hope that Amy wouldn't really be a character. It'd almost be an absence, because mm. what forms around those people is almost more interesting, right? Like, mm. they think they're the centre of everything, obviously because that's how it seems. They're paying everybody. But the community around them, all the people who work for them, are their own ecosystem. Mm. And they've got loads of their own stuff going on, which after a while stops even really referring to the centre of this system. But in terms of what, uh, of what I was saying earlier about authenticity, I think that for those people, yeah. having met some of them myself, is that they lose who they are in the machine, in yes. the ecosystem. I think, I mean, nobody um, wants to feel sorry for a superstar. I don't blame them. But I suppose I feel that anything that stops you having a real relation to the world... Is is sad. Mm. It's kind of pitiful. I mean, that's your one life. You know, that's it. Mm. Um, and to spend it in entirely false relations with people all the time, it, I imagine, is a very melancholy thing. So, time for your last object. What what is that? Last object is a DVD. It was also a film I hadn't seen till I wrote this book called Ali Baba Goes to Town, which ended up being quite a large part of the book. What interested me in it was the interrelation of a few communities. First of all. I guess Jews and African-Americans in America, mm. which has been a very weird, long, I don't know what you call it. It's kind of a, a love affair and then also relationship full of contempt at mm. the same time. Mm. And this movie seemed to me a perfect example of it. it. It's this ridiculous scenario where Eddie Cantor falls asleep and imagines himself in, you know, Arabia. It's various layers. So he's in a kind of... Hollywood Arabia, which is just as ridiculous as you might imagine with mm. the sultans and curly shoes and that whole business. And then inside that Arabia come the African slaves who then do a big dance routine. Mm. So it, there's several layers of like racial stereotyping, all of which had a huge influence on American life. And it's also, I guess, very offensive. And at the same time, within this movie, there's loads of people making their art. You know, Eddie Cantor is a hilarious actor. Mm. The African-Americans are amazing dancers. There's all kinds of beautiful songwriting, dancing, acting, it, stuck within this crazed structure. And I was just curious about that, how people work within it, what their relations were on these sets, on these films as they... And also, Cantor is making a ridiculous... Uh, how do you say, performance of his Jewishness too, to a white American audience. It's all for these white Americans. Yeah. All this ethnicity is being performed, played, ridiculed. And yet but it is American culture, isn't it? It is American all that. culture. Without it, there is no American yeah, culture. Yeah, exactly. So, in a way, the watching eyes of the American culture are kind of the narrator in this situation. Right. They're the ones who are absorbing, they're the ones who are the refracting. But right. the thing itself, the thing that you're interested in, the thing that is speaking, the thing that is singing, the thing that is dancing, right. is the other. Right. But if you take it away, like it's very easy not to watch this film because it is 
it's kind of a Jewish minstrelism in it, in the way that Cantor plays himself. There's actual minstrel scenes. There's every kind of racial cliche. And yet it's also a record of what made American culture so extraordinary. The mixture, for instance, of Jewish songwriters and black singers, mm. which is one of the greatest artistic yeah. combinations the world's ever seen. Yeah. So I, I wanted to think about it as something that I've always loved and always found problematic at the same time, but that those two things can exist simultaneously without anybody's head exploding, hopefully. I think it's a thing, it's a bridge that is not understood or visible enough right. at all. It's complicated. I think there has been a love affair between cultures, like if you think of the Gershwins writing Porgy and Bess, for example, it's an extraordinary thing. Mm. That is the African-American opera, but it was written by white Jewish men. Mm. The two things happen simultaneously. And they the greatest archivists and enjoyers of jazz have historically been Jewish men who've written acres of criticism and adored it and protected it and protected the records. And yet when it came to housing, schools, neighbourhoods, mm. these two communities were against each other or set mm. against each other mm. for a small group of resources. Mm. And I see that every day in New York, this kind of mutual respect in a certain sense, adoration for each other's cultural products, but then a daily animosity mm. in terms of where they lived and where they were schooled. And also yeah. I think, well, this is like a whole other thing, but about who is the oppressor in right. this situation? Because right. Jews obviously feel themselves as oppressed in right. lots of ways historically, but then they suddenly get cast as the oppressor because right. they're seen as part of money, the elites and blah, blah, blah. Right. Anyway, yeah. let's, not, let's not go into but, that because it's a whole are, other thing. You and I. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're okay. <laughs> we're Me and you fine. are okay. But yeah, on a larger scale, <laughs> who knows? Let's hear the last bit of uh, audio we're going to hear, which is the narrator's teacher's just told her that she should take a test to get into grammar school. We walked home in silence. There was nothing more to discuss. We had already been to visit the huge and raucous comp I'd be attending in the autumn. It had been sold to me on the promise it had a dance studio, somewhere in that warren of scuffed corridors, porter cabin classrooms and temporary toilets. Everyone that I knew, excepting Tracy, was heading there, and this was one comfort, safety in numbers. But my mother surprised me. In the grounds of the estate, she stopped at the base of the stairwell and told me that I'd take that test and work hard to pass it. No dancing at the weekend, no distractions of any kind. I was being given the kind of opportunity, she said, that she had never had herself, having been advised, at the same age I was now, and by her own teachers, to work on mastering forty words a minute like all the other black girls. It felt to me as if I were on a certain train, heading wherever it was people like me usually went in adolescence, except now suddenly something was different. I'd been informed that I would be getting off at an unexpected stop further down the line. I thought of my father, pushed off the train before he'd barely left the station, and of Tracy, so determined to jump off, exactly because she'd rather walk than be told which stop was hers or how far she was allowed to go. Well, wasn't there something noble in that? Wasn't there some fight in it, at least, some defiance? And then there were all the outrageous historical cases I heard of at my mother's knee, tales of the furiously talented women, and these were all women in my mother's telling, women who might have run faster than a speeding train if they had been free to do so, but for whom, born in the wrong time, in the wrong place, all stops were closed, who were never even permitted to enter the station. And wasn't I so much freer than any of them, born in England in modern times, not to mention so much lighter, so much straighter of nose, so much less likely to be mistaken for the very essence of blackness itself. What could possibly stop me travelling on? 
When I was writing, I was thinking about the kind of deal offered to kids like me and my generation at the time, right? Which was, if you pass all your exams, and if you are very good, and if you learn everything about British life and culture and Shakespeare and all the rest of it, you can go all the way. Mm. That was not a dishonest deal. It was true to a certain extent. But the question is, what do you have to do to yourself in order to meet those requirements, right? What do you have to ignore? What do you have to pretend isn't in you? And who do you have to leave behind? Mm. And I think the narrator in the book makes a very different choice than I did. She, she says, screw it, basically. She doesn't want to become the person that she would need to be in order to jump through these various hoops. She doesn't mm. see why she should have to jump through various hoops and she also doesn't see why it should be just her mm. and everybody she's loved and known is left behind. Mm. And I think the difference in a kind of solidly middle-class childhood is that you don't feel you're leaving anyone behind, right? You go in a great group together. So that line of refusal, I was thinking about people like um, Nina Simone. She's such a good example, right? She tried to get into that school, classical music school, and they said no. And off, from that point on, she didn't care what they said anymore. She didn't want to make their music. She didn't want to be that person. She became a radical person. She, she had a lot of mental health problems as well. She was kind of driven mad by the process. A story that really haunted me, and I can't remember if I put it in the book or not, is that when she was about nine and the people in her town had realised she had this great talent, they asked her to play piano at like a local concert and her parents were in the front row. And just before it started... People in the church group said, oh, no, the front row is for white people. You can't sit there. Mm. So they moved her parents to the back. And Nina, nine years old, saw this and she was enraged, you know. That's not in the book. I don't know. What, what in the is book. in the book is you talking about <laughs> Nina Simone having a type of ability with notes that is sort of classical. Right. That making that music into almost classical music, into black right. classical music. Right. And she felt angry that nobody recognised that, that she was being pushed into R&B or jazz. Or, and in, in many ways, Nina reacted too strongly against some of her own talents, right? She didn't, because she was so determined not to fit into this mould, she went in opposite directions. She hurt herself sometimes, mm. um, obviously, many times professionally. But the rage was so strong. And I, I think what used to be considered in Nina almost unseemly rage is now at this moment, particularly in America, seen as... A, as a radical thing, you know, as a powerful thing that she had. Mm. So in the book, in the end, the narrator refuses all sorts of narratives. Right. But what do you think she is left with? I think a slightly empty slate, a kind of void, but that might not be a bad thing, right? I, I was very influenced when I was younger by reading these existentialists, this idea that you're thrown into life and you have to make it your life day by day. And it's kind of terrifying and a, a struggle, but it might not be a bad thing rather than slipping into these received narratives that are there for you to live. Thank you very much. That's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Sadie Smith. Thanks. Told from a perspective unlike any other, Nutshell is a classic tale of murder and deceit from one of the world's master storytellers, Ian McEwan. Read... By Rory Kinnear. Now to my father, John Cairncross, a big man, my genome's other half, whose helical twists of fate concern me greatly. It's in me alone that my parents forever mingle, sweetly, sourly, along separate sugar phosphate backbones, the recipe for my essential self. I also blend John and Trudy in my daydreams. Like every child of estranged parents, I long to remarry them, 
this base pair, and so unite my circumstances to my genome. My father comes by the house from time to time, and I'm overjoyed. Sometimes he brings her smoothies from his favourite place on Judd Street. He has a weakness for these glutinous confections that are supposed to extend his life. I don't know why he visits us, for he always leaves in mists of sadness. Available now to download from iTunes and Audible.